Hello there, and welcome to today's episode of Casual Fridays, the podcast where weekly themes are discussed through personal experiences and anecdotes and storytelling. Today's episode is titled Life in War Shelters, and although many of those stories don't actually take place in the shelters, we were cooped up in shelters for 15 years, give or take, on and off during the Lebanese Civil War from 1975 through 1990, and that's why I've decided to title this episode Life in War Shelters. The episode was inspired actually by a comment from MJ on TikTok. She had asked me if uh, we had public libraries in Lebanon while I was growing up. And at the time, I had responded by telling her, not really when we were growing up, but eventually and now we definitely do have a few public libraries. And at the time, I had replied and did not really think of um, of anything else. But a couple of days later, I was sitting and I kind of started thinking, why? Why didn't we have public libraries? It was the 80s. Um, we definitely should have had some. And it struck me that we actually were at war during that time. And in a way, it was a bit of a surprise for me because sometimes you just put away some memories. I had really forgotten that I had spent my childhood and young adult life in shelters. I mean, at least many years of that. And that was what triggered this episode today, in fact. So I was born in June of 1977. The Civil War had begun in 1975. And, you know, even though we had some ceasefires and some um, days and even like long, longer periods where we didn't have um, a, a lot of bombings and a lot of strife, it was still wartime, at least economically. Now, of course, the south of Lebanon had experienced another war almost simultaneously. Uh, the war in the south began in 1985 and in 2000. And so my heart goes out to all those who lived in the south during the time where two wars were, were taking place, let alone one war. Um, basically, this episode is dedicated to all those who are experiencing wars today and all those victims and heroes of war, and all war survivors, and I am one of them. I, it just struck me as I was writing this episode that I am a war survivor. My family, they are all war survivors. Actually, most of my friends and acquaintances are also war survivors. And when you think of it that way, you are impressed at how People in Lebanon are really strong-willed, and they love life. How could you have gone through all that and actually be happy today? I mean, if, if you can call it happy, but that's another story. <laughs> so today I, I ended up um, giving you or bringing together a few war stories. I interviewed actually a few friends and acquaintances, 
and I brought in their stories as well. Some of the stories are tragic, others are borderline insane, <laughs> some are funny, and it's life. Life is a medley of everything, right? Nothing is just tragedy or just comedy or just normal or just abnormal. Life is a mixture of things, even in times of strife and war. Now, the first shelter that we actually um, had in our building, and the first shelter I remember uh, when I was a child, was actually in the basement of our building. Now, of course, it's needless to say that it was a damp and cramped place. We were four families um, on good days. Uh, in a, like a 120 square meter space. Sometimes it would end up being five or six families if people from adjoining buildings came and joined us. You know, some buildings don't have um, shelters that are well equipped or that are as safe as a basement shelter is. And that's why sometimes we had actually people from the neighborhood coming in as well to our shelter. But it's kind of funny because um, one story that my parents always tell of, of that war, at least the, the beginning years of the war, is the story of how they used to buy chocolate, my dad and his friend. And of course, they would buy the imported and a bit of expensive chocolate. And the story goes, as my parents tell it, that they would wait for everybody to go to go to sleep. And as soon as they started opening the wrapper, even if I would be fast asleep, I'd suddenly wake up and start demanding a piece going, um, um. So most of the time I used to get the first piece of chocolate shoved into my mouth to shut me up so I wouldn't wake everybody else in the shelter. So basically, I think people always need comic relief if that is what they remember, like, firsthand about a war. It is really interesting how human nature goes. Uh, during that time, though, around the late um, 70s, um, early 80s, a bomb fell next to our building. The shrapnel actually created a half-meter circle in our living room area. And uh, a piece of shrapnel went um, or actually bounced off a painting and landed at my grandpa grandpa's feet. Uh, he was actually sitting there refusing to go to the shelter and he just sat there staring at a piece of shrapnel spinning uh, in, at his feet and burning the rug. So <laughs> my mom remembers um, hearing him hobbling down the stairs in total shock after having put out the fire, of course. And my mom always kind of fondly remembers um, how he was able to make it down there. Um, he was in his 80s at the time and he had a leg injury. So she understood how difficult it was for him to go up and down stairs. And she knew it was something big that had brought him down. And I'm sure that shock lasted him <laughs> a few hours. Um, it, there was also um, another incident that happened during that war in the 80s when um, also a bomb fell uh, at my, uh, on my dad's factory. 
and um, a lot of his machinery and equipment uh, had to be fixed. Some of it couldn't be replaced. Um, some of it was a total loss. And I do remember my parents talking a lot about um, like the economical situation. Um, we used to be a family who had um, who was not affluent, but we had money. We were able to live well. Um, we were a middle-class family. And during that war, I mean, after a few years of it, the economy really, really um, declined. And I remember my parents sometimes worrying about, you know, how to make ends meet. It wasn't an easy time for them. And of course, I remember going with them sometimes um, to... Uh, buy bread because of course we had to wait in lines uh, lines not just one line of course it would, it would be like hundreds of people uh, waiting for uh, for a piece of bread and sometimes they would actually go like the whole family would go my aunts and their husbands my parents and they would not speak to each other while waiting in line for the bread, so they would get each a piece of bread, um, so they would actually be able to feed their families. Otherwise, if, uh, as the rule went, that one family gets a certain amount of bread, then how could they feed everyone in the shelter? So yes, it, it was a very, very um, tight time economically. I guess the chocolate uh, did not uh, <laughs> did not flow towards the mid-80s to the late 90s <laughs> or early 90s. <laughs> anyway, the thing is that during, as, as, as I said before, there were some periods of peace during the Civil War. And we'd go back to schools, uh, people would go back to work, until we didn't. Um, and if you're wondering <laughs> whether we studied online during uh, those times when we didn't go to school, um, well, it was the 80s, so basically we didn't have Wi-Fi. We were lucky on that. <laughs> and, <laughs> of course, we students were happy that we were passed from year to year without much exams, without much attendance, uh, even government exams uh, were cancelled many years and people were just promoted um, to high school or to universities uh, just automatically without uh, any strife on the students' part. So, and I did experience that myself in grade nine when uh, I had to actually take my exams for, uh, uh, you know, for high school. Um, they just like passed everybody and I was happy. Well, after a few years of using the building basement uh, as a shelter, and as I said, it's like ironed off, so after a bit of an off time, um, they tried to go back to that shelter, and it was really uninhabitable. Uh, the damp was really bad at the time, um, and it, it had really uh, become dilapidated. So my dad devised a new shelter in our apartment, in the corridor of our apartment, actually. We lived on the second floor, and he figured, I guess, that uh, the corridor is basically, you know, it has a lot of walls behind it and before. So we had like a living room area and a bathroom and bedrooms on one side, and the kitchen, another living room area on the other side. And um, so that was basically 
the only area in the house that was the most sheltered. So we created, or like my dad created, uh, this, I don't know, these mattresses. It was like a kind of a, uh, you know, a, a room or a corridor filled with mattresses on the walls and on the floor. Because, of course, um, if any shrapnel were to hit us, um, the mattresses would, would be a shield as well when they're like up on the wall as well. So, yes, we lived in a mattress corridor for a lot of the time. And actually, uh, one night, this, and I'll just digress into another story. Uh, one night when there was a ceasefire, my parents and my uncle, my uncle lived one floor below us. Uh, and just for more information, my grandma lived on the ground floor. So it was my grandma on the ground floor, my uncle on the first floor, and you were on the second floor. So my parents and my uncle decided to go bowling that one night when there was a ceasefire. And we had gone to sleep. It was around 10 that they decided to leave. And usually they tell my grandma where they're going or if they're going out. So she'd watch us. And it seems that they passed by her house. They saw the lights were out. And they didn't want to bother her. So they literally snuck out of the building and went bowling. Now, no one knew where they were. And I woke up um, around midnight to heavy shelling. It was totally crazy. It was, I mean, sometimes shelling would, would, would be intermittent. Uh, you'd have a few minutes of shelling, then some quiet, then a few minutes of shelling, and then some quiet. But that night, it was constant. It, it just wouldn't let up. And I panicked. I was alone with my, uh, in the house with my brother. I was around maybe eight around that time, on that, at that time. And uh, I didn't know what to do. And my grandma wasn't there. So I tried calling her and she wouldn't wake up. And I thought, okay, I called my aunt, see what if they went visiting her, maybe they were playing cards or something. So I called up my aunt and I woke her up apparently and she didn't know where they were. She ended up calling my grandma again. She allowed the, she let the phone to ring uh, constantly until my grandma picked up. And then my grandma came up and she was also worried about where they were. Now, what they were up to was, as I said, bowling. And because the bowling alley was underground, they didn't hear anything that was going on <laughs> above ground. And around one, uh, after midnight, they wanted to come back home. And the owner of the bowling alley just told them to stay put because, you know, the war was really raging outside. And here, of course, my parents panicked even more. So after about half an hour to 45 minutes of waiting, they just decided not to wait anymore. They went to their car and the shelling was so bad, they didn't know if they should drive or stay put. And in those humans where they were sitting in the car, um, someone from the artillery that was facing them thought they were spies. And that was the night when my dad had a gun held to his head. They thought they were spies and they questioned them. Um, and thank God that they believed my parents, <laughs> that they were just out there and they were worried about, my, about their kids. And they let them go. And of course, my dad drove like a crazy madman. My mom told me that basically they had shell, I mean, they had bombs, um, in front of the car, next to the car and behind the car. It was just, 
a crazy roulette uh, game and they just survived somehow and they got home in one piece not knowing they really didn't know how they they survived that experience and of course when they got home my mom my my grandma and my aunt just <laughs> went berserk <laughs> at what they were doing they were responsible people and so on and so forth they never did that again of course but that wasn't the first time my dad actually drove uh, under heavy shelling and, and the bombing. Uh, my parents got married in 1975. It was in May. It's May 23, 1975. And, uh, apparently they had, uh, they had organized their whole wedding in an area a bit farther from, uh, where they would live. Uh, and that was closer to Beirut. We now live, and since that war, um, you know, so after that experience with my parents, they left uh, that area near Beirut um, and came up to the mountains where we live today. So uh, at the time then, uh, they couldn't have the wedding uh, at the area that was designated for the wedding because of also heavy shelling that broke out. And so they had to spend... And the, the whole day before the wedding, just calling up guests, uh, informing them that there was a change in venue. And of course, barely enough of the guests showed up. But about my dad and how he drove under a heavy shelling again was um, he had to go to the church and talk to the priest uh, where, the, where the wedding was originally planned because he needed the marriage certificate, the marriage documents. And the priest at first didn't want to give him any of it because apparently uh, if he gives him the marriage certificate, signed and everything, it means they're already married. And of course, the priest was worried that my mom maybe would change her mind. She, she was allowed to change her mind <laughs> for another 24 hours. But eventually... I don't know how they resolved, they resolved it, and my dad got the uh, the marriage certificate, and uh, of course he never told my mom that she was already married to him. He just let the farce play out, and thank God she said yes, or else I don't know what they would have done. <laughs> so yes, going uh, to that church and coming back was an experience for my dad, my dad also and his friend uh, under heavy bombing, and um, yes. That was another instance where my dad drove like a maniac uh, next to a near bombs or in between bombs. Now, in, 19, in the late 80s and early 90s, the war really intensified again. And this time we couldn't just stay in the shelter um, devised by my dad um, at home. So we sheltered on the ground floor of the building where my actually my grandma lives so basically there's the entrance of the building uh with a huge hall then on one side there was my grandma's small apartment and on the other side not, on the other side there was another apartment so in that uh, entrance hall we actually sheltered and uh the men in the building um devised two extra walls in front of the entrance, uh, they would bring these um, bricks and just, you know, stack them on top of each other in um, in double um, uh, double mode. I don't know what they to call it, like uh, two two sets uh, in a row and uh, in, in doubles. And uh, they had actually we had to zigzag in and out of the building as we as we um, entered or left. 
And basically, uh, well, uh, during that war, I remember it the most uh, because at the time I was um, around 10, 11 years old, even a bit older. And so basically, um, that period of the war, I remember the most. And the scariest day was um, when 40 bombs fell all around us in our area. And one bomb actually landed at the building entrance. And we were so lucky that it fell under a car. And the shrapnel all hit a garden wall facing our house. Of course, the two cars that were like the one that was on, uh, over the bomb and the one decided just, you know, imploded because of the pressure. And luckily, no one was hurt uh, during that experience. But uh, I remember how my dad had grabbed, had grabbed my uh, one-year-old brother and um, he just, you know, took him and, uh, and he flung himself across the threshold of my grandma's uh, apartment. The door was open. And my other brother and myself were a bit farther away. And then we ran and we threw ourselves on top of our dad. And the, the, the sound was deafening. And it was really, I think, the scariest, the scariest um, experience I've had with bombing for me uh, in my life. Now, and I say for me because I know uh, people who live near the capital experienced much more atrocities. Those who live near the capital uh, had it really worse than we did, and they had to live for much longer time periods in shelters. Uh, even when ceasefires, uh, you know, were were happening around areas outside of Beirut many times, uh, around Beirut, uh, there'd still be sniping and, um, you know, more fighting going on. So people who lived uh, near to, near Beirut had to rely heavily on canned foods to survive. Uh, for example, my mom was able to, you know, go up to our apartment uh, to cook something. Or, you know, um, at my grandma's house, uh, there was a stove, of course, and they were able to uh, to cook a decent meal. They could actually go to the grocers, you know, at times and and get uh, vegetables and, and uh, other kinds of food. Whereas those who lived near the capital sometimes had to stay days, um, you know, cooped up. And one of my friends told me the story of how for four days in a row, all they had to eat was uh, the mashy soup. And of course, uh, my friend at the time was very young. He didn't, he didn't really get what was happening. And so one day he'd have like the broccoli soup, other day, um, you know, the chicken soup and whatever. And he would always tell his dad, I don't want soup. I don't want soup. And he, he was, he, he's now a dad. And he told me, I just can't imagine how my dad felt. Uh, when I was telling him that, the idea of a father not being able to uh, provide for his family what he's supposed to, it was such a thing that stayed with him till today. And uh, he told me he told me of how they used to also put like lots of like uh, bread or pasta in the soup so that the kids would actually have something in their bellies. 
And this also reminds me of, uh, you know, the Chernobyl happened around that time as well. And uh, <laughs> I remember a letter I had written to my cousin uh, who was living in Saudi Arabia at the time. And I told her, you know, could you please save us a piece of steak? Because we can't eat steak here anymore. <laughs> So basically, yeah, food was an issue. Of course, it's, it's part of the whole experience. <laughs> now, those who lived close, close, closer to the capital did not have access to generators like we did. Uh, electricity went out a lot and uh, candles were scarce. And uh, people had to devise their own lamps. Sometimes they would just have you know a piece of string with some gauze hanging um, from a wire with kerosene, a kerosene lamp, or whatever kind of they would use for fuel to 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 light this this piece of gauze. So basically, it was dangerous, but they had no choice but to devise um, uh, such things to have light. Whereas in uh, our area, uh, we were farther away from the capital, we were able to uh, have generators, some, some people would have generators in their, in their building, like for the whole building, and some would even have generators on their balconies for the individual apartments. Um, and those who live near the cities also experience displacement. I know a family, they're actually my parents' neighbors now, uh, when they were kids, they um, had to live in a schoolroom for a year and then an abbey for three years before their father was able to locate an apartment outside of Beirut for them to live in it permanently. And um, those who live near the city saw and experienced a lot of gruesome deaths of loved ones and strangers alike. Um, a friend told me of how uh, a sniper killed a neighbor of theirs on the street in front of her and no one could get home for more than 20 minutes because the sniping was still ongoing. And they had just, I mean, she was young at the time and she just remembers looking and staring at that body right there and, and feeling horrible and she was horrified. I mean, at least we need to get to that person. I mean, if he would have survived, he didn't. I mean, and... Um, that's where it was a horrible, horrible experience. Another friend of mine actually uh, saw her brother die in front of her. She was having a conversation with him. Uh, they were kids, and there was a ceasefire, supposedly. And only one bomb that day fell on their street, and that was enough. A piece of shrapnel hit him behind the ear, and he just crumpled to the floor, just like that, in a second. And yes, a lot of tragedies happened, and um, in a way, I I know how lucky I am that I did not have to experience such atrocities. That I was much more sheltered um, than others. Uh, that I didn't have any loss. You know, I didn't lose any of my family members, um, and I, I am very grateful. And I know how lucky I am to be a war survivor who didn't have so many atrocious stories to tell. But you know, human, human nature is truly strange because after each of these stories, I mean, all of these people told me their, their horrible stories, 
And they all ended, that's really funny because they all ended their stories with this thing. Oh, I had a crush on a girl. Oh, I had a crush on a boy in the shelter. <laughs> so in shelter life, you know, kids are brought together and when they are, you know, at that age where they start noticing the opposite sex, you know, they're going to fall for each other. And so it was really interesting that all of these, um, well, many interviews I had ended on a positive note, a cheerful note about love at first sight, about friendships that were formed. Uh, you know, like I got my best friend, you know, because of that shelter. Uh, I must love my life because of that shelter. I had a crush on that guy when I was in the shelter. And um, so basically, uh, I remember mainly, uh, I didn't have a crush personally on this neighbor of ours <laughs> at the time. I was, you know, about nine, ten years old. And yes. I had the crush. It was my first crush, of course, in my life. And um, now I don't talk to him anymore. Isn't that unfortunate? It's funny how things happen in life. But yes, and I remember playing Monopoly and playing cards. And I know people tell me of how they learned how to stitch, how to crochet. And I mean, in the end... I know if it is the human nature, the human will to survive that forces us to forget or at least put behind our sorrows and remember the good times that shine even in the darkest hours. I guess love does conquer all if all my interviews ended with a remembrance of love and a smile. Well, this brings me to the end of today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, next week's episode will be titled uh, The Female Voice. I hope you will tune into that. Until then, I wish you a lovely weekend. And I send you all my love and all my hugs. And enjoy your week. <laughs>